and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. My name is Brian Fry, and I'm your host, the uh, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Richard H. Underwood, Edward T. Breathitt Professor of Law at UK College of Law. And he's going to be talking about his two books, Crime Song, True Crime Stories from Southern Murder Ballads, and Gaslight Lawyers, Criminal Trials and Exploits in Gilded Age New York. So hello, welcome to the show. Hello, Brian. So great to have you here. So I thought maybe we could start uh, by talking about Crime Song for about 15 minutes, and then maybe after that we can talk about about Gaslight Lawyers as well. So for listeners who might not already uh, be familiar with the term, Rick, what is a murder ballad anyway, and how did you become interested in them? Well, I guess I became interested uh, because I'm a child of the 50s and 60s when there was something of a folk revival. And lots of people, uh, believe it or not, were interested in folk music then. And uh, many of the favorite uh, tunes were old murder ballads. And of course, murder ballads were really uh, sort of, in, in a way, the crime literature or the uh, internet of the day in the sense that uh, these crimes really happened and then the story would be spread uh, vocally. Uh, in the form of song, and, and the, really the this type of uh, music uh, is derived from the old uh, British uh, pamphlets that would be the broadsides that would be published uh, back in the, oh, I'd say beginning in the 17th century, but well into the, the, the 19th, so all through that period, if there was a particularly grisly murder, uh, a broadside would be sold, uh, sometimes a penny a sheet. Uh, one author was reported to have sold almost a million copies of one of his broadsheets, but I think that's surely an exaggeration. <coughs> but uh, that that tradition then broke into song and then was carried across the pond to America, where we saw the same uh, situation where people would write up songs, usually to music that already existed, which led to some odd couplings of lyrics and tunes. Uh, uh, wipeout of an entire family, for example, played to the tune of Home Sweet Home was a, a bit <laughs> odd, uh, but um, uh, that's where we got this tradition. That's so cool. It's almost like uh, music as tabloid. As it yeah, were. it is. That's exactly exactly what it was, uh, although, of course, people would wonder, well, why were these songs popular? And uh, the truth is, part of it was people like scary stories and uh you know, the people who see an accident and can't turn their way, face away from it, you know, and all the scary stuff we see on TV. But also these had a, were thought to have a moral uh, cast to them where uh, regardless of what the true facts, the ballads would ultimately mer- morph so that the victim was perhaps more virtuous than she really was and the victim was, or the killer was more evil. And of course he would always hang at the end, even though a lot of times that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed a, an interesting feature that often distinguishes um, murder ballads with a British origin from murder ballads with a United States-based origin, and in that it seems like often the the the, the British-based murder ballads will have a supernatural theme that uh, is less common in U.S. murder ballads. Yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, the older British ballads uh, you you frequently. Uh, 
see the uh, the boy kills the girl. That's usually the scenario, although sometimes it's reverse. But um, at the end of the ballads, frequently, uh, let's say, a parrot will appear. What the hell is the parrot doing there? And uh, part of that, I suppose, was the uh, exotic factor of the British Empire stretching out, uh, since I'm not sure that many parrots are native to, uh, <laughs> uh, say, Sussex or Kent. But um, the parrot actually stood for, uh, in many cases, immortality. Sometimes they stood for, for the conscience that is watching the, uh, the, the killer uh, and always the possibility the parrot may tell on him, which has actually happened in some real cases, believe it or not. <laughs> Interesting. It's like a symbolic element. Yeah, it's a symbolic element, yes. That's really cool. So in your book, you, you, you tell the true story of quite a few different murder ballads. And I was wondering if you could share a couple of your favorites. Okay, well, I have, uh, there are 24 main ballads, uh, each in a, a separate uh, little chapterette, I guess you could call it. Uh, if you were to look at the, t- first I'll hold it up so that the radio listeners can see all of the, uh, it's festooned with uh, stickers from awards, mm-hmm. uh, which of course you can't see, but that's all right. Trust me, it's festooned with awards. Uh, <laughs> we've actually sold one or two books too, which is encouraging. Yeah. But I have it broken up in, for example, uh, one chapter is The Real Murdered Girls, another is Ballads Where the Girls Fight Back, and then I have uh, other chapters, for example, Mobs and Murder Ballads, are where mobs are involved, usually a lynching, and family affairs is where we slaughter whole families. You know, you can't slaughter enough people in these mm-hmm. ballads. But some of my favorites, of course, uh, the, one of my favorites is Omi Wise, which goes back to the very, very early 19th century in America. It's kind of the grandmother of all these uh, murdered girls ballads. It was in North Carolina. But uh, two I particularly particularly like are from Kentucky. Seven of my ballots are from Kentucky. Most are uh, virtually unknown because uh, they never really hit it big on the folk circuit uh, for right. whatever reason. Right. But, so, uh, so, so, Rick, when these songs became popular, was it usually a function of the song itself or often a function of particular performers who did versions that people found especially interesting? Well, of course, the... the uh, the original ballads, uh, particularly in Kentucky, were uh, lyrics right out of the newspaper, and local local people were perpetuating or preserving the story of the murder that occurred in their area. But the ones that people know now, as you say, were picked up uh, by maybe the Carter family, somebody like that, and the ballad became popular, uh, and then made, maybe it was inherited by uh, uh, some of the... Uh, Dolly Parton or, or someone like that who picks up the, the ballad and, and sings it. Uh, that's why the ones I spent the most time researching were, were obscure because they were never picked up by a celebrity like that. Right, so the stories weren't as well known and there right. was more work to be done digging up right. the information. Oh, yeah. And well, in fact, I, I still, since the book's gone out, people who are claim to be related to some of the victims or the killers have contacted me and some students in Pikeville. They actually had a course based on the Crime Song book, and those students went out and gathered more information that I could add to a second edition. It's very oh, wow. interesting. Fantastic. Well, why don't you tell the story of one of the Kentucky ballads? <clears throat> well, I think one of my favorites is Stella Kenny. Uh, Stella was uh, kind of a, uh, an awkward or a gawky girl. She was supposed to be very tall but had a 
something wrong with her mouth. I suspect it was a cleft palate. palate. But she was sent by her father to help an uh, uncle whose name was Fraser, spelled about five different ways, even in the reports. And he was a little man. They must have made an odd pair. He was a little man who had one leg shorter than the other if you're a pessimist or one longer than the other if you're an optimist. <laughs> and he was, either way, he was prone to circling, right? So he had a cane. He was all he carries a cane. But anyway, he managed to get this poor girl pregnant when she was supposed to be taking care of his ailing wife. Uh, remember, they didn't have HBO or Showtime, so, you know, things can go downhill quickly. But on the road back, when the father wanted her back, uh, he killed her, apparently, with a hatchet. And uh, so that gave rise to the ballad. He was tried seven times. The prosecutors seemed to have trouble with the rules of evidence, but eventually uh, they got one all the way. There wasn't a mistrial, and eventually he was uh, convicted. So, so six, six, mis- six mistrials before he was convicted. Well, huh? yeah. Actually, he had two. He was convicted two times, and they were reversed. There were, like, three, three mistrials. Two convictions that were reversed because of problems in evidence, and then the third one finally stuck. Uh, but uh, try, try again. Huh? Yeah, and uh, the the um, to show you how rough the uh, lyrics are, uh, they're taken right out of the uh, right out of the newspaper. Uh, here's here's how it goes. Uh, she was carried to the city hall where she gave some awful sighs, and the sight of her muddy clothes would have brought tears to your eyes. There was her dear old father kneeling by her side, and then it says, with seven gashes in her head, no wonder Stella died. Oh, I love that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Well, how, how about some other ones? You, you mentioned uh, Omi Wise, or Naomi Wise. As yeah, it's often, Naomi often or known. Omi. Yeah, that is a really... Uh, a popular song and also uh, an especially kind of grisly and interesting story. It is. Uh, she was, uh, of course, the ballad went through all the uh, permutations of being handed down and polished, so someone that was a particularly wasn't virtuous to begin with becomes a very virtuous uh, maiden who's killed by the bad guy. Uh, actually, in the and usually uh, in, in many versions, the... Uh, the bad guy gets his just desserts when, in fact, he was never convicted of her murder. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, in some versions of the ballad in, in Kentucky, in particular, he uh, runs off uh, with the army and is never tried for anything. Actually, that's conflated with another Kentucky ballad called Lula Byers. But if you get to, if you this this book has about 90 illustrations or photographs, and we actually commissioned. Uh, some original art and also the art of a North Carolina artist, Molly Stoughton, who has some uh, some really uh, beautiful uh, pictures that accompany uh, the Omi Wise ballad. So there's a lot of art in here. Mm. Uh, you can see that uh, where the guy's pulling Omi's body out of out of the water. Uh, so we tried to incorporate different art media with this. So it's some some uh, graphic art some music, uh, mostly history from a lawyer's point of view. So mm-hmm. I, I look at the stories as a trial lawyer would look at it. Cool. So what, so what happened to Omi Wise? Well, she was drowned. Uh, <clears throat> um, the boy who kills her promises to marry her. She's pregnant. Actually, she'd had one child before, but she's pregnant. He wants to move up the social ladder, so he decides to get uh, rid of her. And he, he tells her to meet him by near Adams's Spring, the site of which I actually have a photograph that, of course, was made years afterward. 
and I also have a photograph of some uh, <coughs> probably taken about 1910, so 100 years after the murder, where picnickers are picnicking near the side of the drowning. Uh, she meets him at Adams' spring, she hops up on the horse, he's promised her money and many fine things, and she ends up being thrown in the water at the mill dam with her dress pulled up over her head and tied, uh, so she drowns. Uh, and uh, He actually was arrested and broke jail and later was tried for jailbreaking, uh, but he was never tried for murder. <laughs> Really? Uh, that's right. And, uh, of course, uh, she was a more or less an indentured service, and that's the servant, and that's true of many of these ballads. Society really didn't care much about these girls and frequently didn't get uh, any justice at all. It's, it seems like a common theme among many of the young girl murdered ballads is the, the villain, as it were, impregnating the oh, young yeah. woman uh-huh. and then killing her. Well, and, of course, uh, you don't have to go through many editions of the Lexington Herald-Leader in the past 10 years, say, without seeing something very similar. Not long ago, there was one, a murder just like this, this sort of thing. Uh, everything, everything old is new again. That's right. That's right. Um, so I know that in, in writing this book, and in your other book as well, which we can talk about in, in a minute, you did a lot of primary source research, looking at a lot of different sources. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of doing that, uh, what you were looking for, what you found, um, and how it worked. Well, I, I don't uh, really have much of a method. Here's how it works. Uh, some years ago, I wrote an article with one of our librarians who went to school at Berea with my wife, and I decided it might be fun uh, to see if I could find out the true facts behind a few ballads, and she helped me find some sources. Uh, but I've collected these for years, and they've sat in my... Uh, I've, I've taught law school at UK for almost 40 years, and. Uh, so over the years, I, I build up piles of research. Uh, they could be newspaper articles or memoirs or, or anything that I can lay my hands on to try to preserve it. And then uh, as I've gotten older, uh, I've decided I better write these books if I'm going to. So I take the stacks and I turn them into a book. Um, so the methodology is... Uh, is uh, the, the work is in the research, but it's done over time. The writing's actually pretty easy. Uh, once you get a theme, once you get the, the vision of what you mm-hmm. want to do, and, uh, and I always like these books to be a little bit, uh, maybe the bubble's a little off-center, uh, <laughs> as we say, because uh, that, that makes them interesting. Some authorial voice in there, as it were. Yeah, sure. So um, when it comes to, to the actual recordings of murder ballads, do you have particular songs that you... Uh, that you find particularly uh, well performed. Well, I think uh, I think some of the best versions of these can be found on the old uh, Smithsonian Folkways uh, series. Uh, <clears throat> and I, truth, truthfully, I haven't been so much a collector of the songs and the various groups that do them. Although I would make uh, noted that in the past uh, ten years, many new performers uh, are doing versions of these old songs. Uh, and uh, it, it's quite interesting. In fact, you had a group that uh, did Murder Ballad Monday mm-hmm. shows in Brooklyn. Uh, in, I can't remember the name of them. I now. think I think Vandiver. Well, Vandiver does that, yeah. but the group that was at your house party. Oh right, Charming Disaster. Charming Disaster. Yeah, yes. they're really good, and they did the Murder Ballad uh, Mondays in Brooklyn. So, uh, lots of new artists, also some graphic artists. Uh, so. Uh, 
it, it's been interesting. And, and we always, we have a web page and in the books, I, I make reference to these new artists, whether they're uh, musical performers or, or people in the fine arts that are interested so people can know about it. Very cool, very cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your other book, Gaslight Lawyers, uh, Criminal Trials and Exploits in Gilded Age New York as well. What's the, um, what's the subject of this book? And, and just for readers who might not otherwise know, what is gaslight anyway? Well, of course, I didn't realize that this was a popular term of gaslighting from the old Gaslight movie. So I mean, this has nothing to do with that. This is the gaslight era in New York which I would place uh, roughly between, uh, what, 1870 and 1890. Uh, and it's also called The Gilded Age. Uh, Mark Twain and one of his cohorts wrote a book called The Gilded Age. And many people uh, are interested in this, although I would say that most of us probably never got any education about that period of American history in our history classes in high school, certainly. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's an interesting period. Some say it is a mirror of... Uh, the current era because you have the very rich, uh, the very poor immigrants, uh, and New York is uh, beginning to grow and become, uh, uh, you know, international city. And at that time, they had uh, many uh, famous lawyers, very colorful, uh, and the rich people. The names are you think of the Astors and Vanderbilt and all that. Uh, so it's quite an interesting era very like our own and so I because I knew of the lawyers I decided I would see if I could find trial transcripts and newspaper articles that would give me original sources on these great trials and, and they're all they're quite bizarre all everybody's crazy and the, the, the judges are weird and, and the the crooks are hilarious and the, the lawyers are a combination of all of the above it's just a very colorful period and fun even a, even a ghastly murder can be fun in, in, in the gaslighter. <laughs> right. Well, why don't you share some of your favorite stories from okay. from the book? Okay. Again, I'll I'll open the festooned, <laughs> highly awarded cover. Yeah, I, st- I stipulate the cover is in fact festooned with awards. <laughs> and uh, oh, by the way, I'll be uh, a cheap commercial. Uh, I'll be at Apollo Pizza in Richmond. If any of you are, uh, they have a reading a reader series. So I'll be there 8 o'clock Thursday if you're in the area, and you can have a beer down there at Apollo Theater. Theater. Boy, I'm already in New York City. Now, Apollo Pizza (laughs) in Richmond, uh, a place that's actually owned by two of my former students. They're everywhere. Uh, But anyway, um, uh, the way I designed the book was to tell the story of generations of lawyers, so I begin with the, the famous William Howe, Big Bill Howe. Uh, he does many, many of the criminal cases, especially with insanity defense. And then he is later challenged by a group of younger lawyers, and I go through their experiences with Howe and then their later cases. They become quite famous, and then ultimately uh, uh, they get to the end of their road. But uh, one of the cases of interesting I call the Frenchie, and what happened was, uh, this was at the time of the uh, gaslight era, Victorian era, turning into Edwardian era in England, where people were, prostitutes were ended up sliced up in the Whitechapel area, Jack the Ripper. And uh, so uh, the New Yorkers are discussing that in their yellow journalist press, and they say they'd never get away with that stuff in New York City. And of course, a body turns up that looks like a Jack the Ripper murder. 
and the Ripperologists are still, you know, in search of Jack the Ripper. I'm not particularly interested in Jack, if there ever was a Jack, <laughs> but I'd stir everybody up with that now. But uh, the police decide to, that they better solve this, so they find somebody basically to frame. <laughs> so this is the story of poor Frenchy, who was a, a former French soldier who had come over after being discharged from the Moroccan Wars. And he basically uh, is a beggar and con artist, but he gets uh, the murder pinned on him, uh, is convicted, uh, but ultimately uh, pardoned. But it's quite an interesting story. Jacob Paris, the famous reporter, and others proved that the trail of blood that the police followed uh, was actually not there when they first arrived on the scene, if you know what I mean. So there may have been planted evidence. That's a great one. The other one is Maria Barbala. Do you have time for a couple? Sure, yeah. Uh, Maria was a young immigrant woman who was seduced by a cad, and uh, she, when he decided not to marry her, uh, he said something to the effect that only pigs married. She went home and got a, a razor and then came back. He was sitting in a saloon, and she got up behind him and slit his uh, throat from ear to ear. Oh, my. So she was then to be tried uh, for murder. And when we were in New York, my wife and I and my daughter, we went around trying to find the scenes of all these murders. And most of them were now McDonald's or big hotels. But this particular place where the saloon was is still there. Huh. So it's, it's a residential uh, place, and I got pictures of it. But anyway, Maria was convicted. She couldn't speak... Uh, uh, much English, and the trial was something of a travesty. <clears throat> but um, she, uh, uh, the the next generation of lawyers I talked about who used to struggle with how, had finally gotten better with experience, and they uh, represented uh, Maria in her second trial. They were supported by uh, an American who had married a, an Italian count, so money came into play to help Maria. And they actually, I say, concocted a defense theory uh, that she uh, was the victim of psychic epilepsy, which is hmm. BS. But anyway, so they managed to come up with this uh, defense, and uh, the jury let her go what on is, the second trial. What exactly trial. is psychic epilepsy? It's uh, anyway. something that somebody made up, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, and hers was not the only psycho uh, psychic epilepsy case. But basically what happened in this era, era was the defense lawyers would find an expert witness, uh, an alienist, you've heard that term, an early psychiatrist, and they weren't very sound in their theory or anything. And they tended to cancel each other out in these trials uh, because on the same set of facts, they'd all have different opinions. Uh, but uh, what the defense lawyers would do is inject a mental state's defense, an insanity, some kind of wild insanity place, so that they could bring in all the bad stuff about the victim that they weren't supposed to bring in. Uh -huh. So the jury could basically say, we're not going to miss this guy. Uh, you know, good thing she killed him. I would have too. And so they're not supposed to do that, but it, it works like a charm if the judge lets you get away with it. So that's what is woven through all these uh -huh. trials and what makes it so much fun. Uh -huh. Yeah, one thing I really enjoyed about this book in particular was how you brought your experience teaching evidence, professional responsibility, and other classes at the law school into talking about lawyering during that period. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, you know, I was, uh, I've was i taught evidence for 40, almost 40 years, and uh, trial practice, they brought me here to the law school, supposedly, to teach uh, trial practice and litigation skills. <coughs> but, uh, excuse me, 
uh, I was able to find, in many cases, original transcripts. If you'll, well, many of you don't recall because you're too young, but back in the 70s, New York was going bankrupt, and so the officials were throwing away all of their court records and whatnot. And the librarians at John Jay uh, College of Justice uh, in Manhattan managed to preserve some of these transcripts so I could get my whole hands on them and actually see Big Bill Howe trying cases or see Emanuel Friend or Abe Levy, the new generation of lawyers, trying the cases and then I could see how the judges ruled and, and see how the cases were put together and, and the arguments that were made. So uh, it's both of these books actually, Crime Song and Gaslight Lawyers, are the stories are told what I, through what I call my, uh, my old lawyer trifocals uh, because they have a legal twist on them, uh, but they're also just great stories. Uh, so anybody would find them uh, fun, I think. Mm-hmm. How was how being a lawyer during that period different from lawyering today? Well, of course, it was much more freewheeling, uh, particularly in the uh, criminal practice. Uh, these tended to be uh, smaller firms, uh, and of course the uh, criminal defense lawyers were very colorful characters, uh, and a lot of them were ethnic, uh, who would not be found in the big uh, silk stockings uh, firms like Brian Fry practiced at (laughs) in New York City. So they were very freewheeling, and they they knew how to appeal to a jury. And uh, what's interesting is one of the famous lawyers was a a, a prosecutor by the name of Francis Wellman, who wrote a famous book on cross-examination that lawyers and students still read. And uh, you would think that he was a saintly figure, given all the praise heaped on him, but actually he was a ruthless SOB. And uh, so I teach legal ethics, too. And so I had some fun uh, looking at the stuff that lawyers actually did in those days, which is hardly, they were hardly paragons of ethical practice. (laughs) But then, you know, for some that hasn't changed all that much. Right. The ethics have always been a malleable thing among lawyers, right? They say, what, what, what do they say? You know, like uh, model rule zero, honor among thieves. <laughs> well, I, of course, I'm not as hard on lawyers as that, but I do like lawyer jokes. And, and uh, anytime I can tell one, I, I do. So. Well, here, here's your opportunity. Uh, why don't you tell a lawyer joke to close out the interview? Uh, FCC friendly, of course. Well, actually, I can't think of one offhand. You you stumped me. I thought you were going to ask me about the knife that I have pointed at your ah, chest right now. Oh, my. Now, oh, my. <laughs> uh, which I figured you'd focus on, but I guess you're fearless. Uh, I like things that tell stories, and mm-hmm. this particular knife has an interesting story. I collect them. Uh, you can, if you look at the right. wood, it looks rather exotic. Mm-hmm. And that is the wood. Uh, it's the, the briar wood when a tree is injured or whatever it produces briar and of course you've seen briar for pipes and it's very a beautiful wood and this is from I, I know Brian could tell right away this is the briar from a red uh, kuliba tree from Australia uh, and uh, the kuliba tree uh, figures into a famous British ballad where someone dies although it's not really a murder ballad and so uh, you got just a, me- yeah, a minute. Yeah, of course. Here. Of course. Uh, the reason it intrigued me, and you'll know the ballad as soon as I tell you the name of it, but a, a fellow by the name of a swag man who is an itinerant sheep shearer uh, is uh, trekking across uh, Queensland. Uh, traveling on foot was known as waltzing, I think from the German Vom der Waltz, if you're really interested. I know you are. 
and uh, he has on his back a, a kit which consists of everything he owns wrapped up in a tent which is known as a Matilda there I've given away the name of the song but he is uh, under a coolibah tree which is type, a type of eucalyptus that grows along the banks of the billybong what is a billybong? it's like a horseshoe lake meandering river that is cut off and then you have like an oxbow lake and he sees a jumbuck I have to translate all this for you, <laughs> which is a sheep drinking, and so he kills it and puts it in his food bag when up arrives the squatter. Sounds like a poor guy, but a squatter is actually a landowner who's gotten his vast tract of land by squatting on it, and three uh, mounted policemen who they call troopers, and they're after him. They, they realize that he's stolen one of the sheep, and he says, you'll never catch me alive, and he jumps into the billabong and drowns and his ghost still patrols that area. And that became the unofficial national anthem of Australia, known as Walsing Matilda. It's almost like a murder ballad as it, national it anthem. It is, and like I thought it was about dancing with this girl, you know, like Casey dancing with the strawberry blonde, but that's mm. not what it's about at all. Australia's <laughs> odd. Everything's upside down. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Ray. Alrighty, my pleasure.